0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number six of the Camera Shake podcast with Nick Kirby and me, Kirsten Lutz, the photo and video podcast coming at you straight out of isolation into your eardrums. We'll be talking about talk life and knockdown, what's happening in the world outside, and if we're lucky, we'll hit on photography too. But before we get started, please throw us a solid and subscribe to this podcast. And if listening to our super smooth voices isn't enough for you, you can check us out in glorious Technicolor over on YouTube. Without further ado, Let's get into it. All right, so we're back, episode six. How's it going, Nick? Going all right, mate. It's going all
1: right. I've had uh, quite a busy few days doing our video challenge, um, so that's taken up an awful lot of time. But hopefully, the end result has been has been worth it. Um, uh, yeah, that's really been occupying a lot of my time.
0: Uh, how about you? How's your week been? Pretty much the same, really. Um, the I found this week's challenge really tough, I have to say. Um, that was really... Man, that did my head in <laughs> at some point. Uh, so
1: one thing that we've changed um, over the last week week or so is the Camera Shake podcast logo. Yes, it is brand spanking new and looks slightly more fancy. Um, so that was really cool kay you you um you designed that um real real quick what what have you changed about it and you know is actually is there any are are there any photoshop tips in there that might be quite useful to 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 share
0: um yeah i just i just changed it because um well actually for no particular reason other than i thought that the original logo um that i designed um a few weeks earlier wasn't quite retro enough for me <laughs> i thought you know i kind of in my head I've always had this idea for like a slightly more uh, retro looking logo. And yeah. um, I thought, you know, now's the time. <laughs> it's as good as any. So I just came up with that. It has, uh, I don't really know what the technical term is for these things, but um, it has little twiddly bits on the outside um, <laughs> that uh, So you can use or you cannot use depending on what context the logo is in. So for instance, if it's on a, like a round, um, you know, profile picture or something like that, you can leave those out and it kind of it works really well without those. And then if it's on a on a wider yeah. um, like a, a Facebook banner or something, you can keep them in, and it makes it look good. So it's you know it's, it's quite a flexible little logo. Mm. Um, and I like the, the vintage feel. And I did um, design it in Photoshop. You know, um, I know a lot of people use uh, Illustrator or InDesign or something for uh, for logo design, but I like using Photoshop, and it has advantages, advantages and disadvantages. The advantage for me is I know Photoshop very well makes it relatively easy for me to use um, but uh, yeah it's really it was a fairly quick job <laughs> I have to mm-hmm. say you know.
1: so I assume you put the um the the twiddly bits on a, a separate layer so you can turn it on and off yeah so these. pretty much
0: everything you see in the logo is uh on separate layers there's a bunch of stars on the top and as the twiddly bits and the text elements and everything it's all separate so you can you can change everything and you can turn things on and off and you know, play around with it a little bit. Nice. So yeah, it's it just gives you a little bit of flexibility when you design something like that.
1: Yeah, for sure. For
0: because sure. you never know. You know, we might have t shirts made with it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you never know. Um but we well, know certainly you know, we use it on um thumbnails, we use it on uh you know, Facebook banners. Um mm-hmm. you know, we use it in lots of different different ways. Um yeah. and so it's, it's up here somewhere yeah up there so yeah so um it's it's always a good idea to uh, leave a little bit of flexibility in those things if you can
1: yeah for sure
0: but um not you know not everybody's a, a graphic designer and it's it's easy to get hold of um some basic logo templates in fact I mean this logo is really based on a um on sort of a a retro type logo type of a thing you know so uh, okay. there are lots of uh, Statistically, there are lots of logos that look very similar because they're from a similar sort of time, um, and you can find a lot of design elements. Um, yeah. in those. So yeah. yeah, it's very useful to uh, if you're interested in that sort of thing. Yeah. It's right. Very useful love, to have a look around. I love it. Looks, looks great. Looks great. Nice little upgrade. Yeah, it works better than the old one, so it's you know immediate improvement. Thank yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This is a quick recap. For all of our listeners and our viewers over on YouTube, uh, every week we set ourselves a photo and or video challenge. So that means we, uh, we set a subject um, and we make a photograph based on that subject. And then we have a look at those uh, photographs and we just talk about them and we you know, give constructive criticism, I should say. Um, and the last challenge was a video challenge. So, how did that go for you, Nick? It took longer than I was anticipating it would on this
1: occasion. Normally, I'm pretty good at estimating the amount of time, but it did take a little bit longer. Um, What I did in great depth was pre-production. Now, I always do um, some pre-production, more so uh, on some occasions than others, depending on what the project is. Um, but this one I did quite a lot. And the reason I did a lot was because, A, I was relatively short on time to get it completed, so I needed to know exactly what I was going to do. And, B, um, I knew the style of video I wanted to produce, and that was going to involve lots and lots of fast cuts. So there was going to be lots of different shots that would be, would be required. Now, had I not done enough pre-production and planned out the shots that I wanted to get... I could have been there and go. All right, I'll get this. I'll get this, and then I'll I'll go to edit, and I won't have everything that I want and need mm. to to fit. Um. So it taking a long time. Um. But I love doing it. This particular one was really good fun for me, and that's maybe because I'm slightly biased towards video. <laughs> it was such good fun. I tried out a couple of things and um on for throughout the majority of it and i i actually limited myself as well quite deliberately to one specific lens and one specific light as yeah. well for most of it not all of it because it wasn't possible for some of it um but where where i could i stuck stuck with that so i kind of made it a, 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 an additional challenge for
0: myself how did how did yours go well um, i was just thinking actually unintentionally, I also limited myself to one lens, um, but it's not. Like I said, that wasn't intentional. I just realized that I actually shot everything on the same lens. <laughs> I didn't shoot everything on the same camera, mm-hmm. um, but uh, as far as interchangeable lenses are concerned, I, had to ch- I did shoot everything on the same lens. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know me. Normally, when I make videos, um, I'm quite big on production notes and on pre-production, um, and I like to really detail everything out from you know the main shots the b-roll um, all the other inserts that are needed yeah. and all the other bits and bobs you know uh, special effects um, sound effects whatever um, I'd like to have all of that um, listed out so then when it when it comes to actually making the thing um it's it's just a, such a time saver you know you spend that time planning in advance mm-hmm. um, and then when it when it comes to shooting it just speeds everything up um, yeah. And when it comes to editing, it's just 10 times as fast because you're not, you know, roaming around trying to find bits and, you know, you've got everything lined out and it makes editing so much easier. Yeah. However, in this particular case, my pre-production, let me just show you this, my pre-production... A very fancy, leather-bound book you've got there. Yes, absolutely. My pre-production is one page... (laughs) that's it that is it one page
1: So it may have only been one page but it got you the results that you were after right
0: yeah yeah i mean i really struggled though i have to say i mean i struggled um so the 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 subject for the video challenge was a day in lockdown and that was basically the, the the subject that we uh that we set ourselves and I found it very difficult to come up with an idea for that. I have to say I really struggled with that. Um and so, you know, I spent days and days and days mulling over different ideas. And um and so yeah, I, I was I you know, I got to the point where I was gonna make a video about not having any ideas for a video. <laughs> you know. Um and it was actually It was my daughter who challenged me to a race um, that then gave me the idea, you know, and I kind of thought, well, actually, you know, I might as well sort of integrate that as a a main idea, as a core Mm -hmm. idea, and then build everything else around it. And then then from then onwards, it was not, it wasn't that hard. So I toyed around with a couple of different ideas when we first
1: discussed doing this challenge. And my, my first instinct was to do something in the style of the series 24, and I thought, well, I'd love to do that, but that's going to involve that's going to involve me being in most of the shots to make it feel kind of right. Um, yeah. And now that isn't all that easy on your own, unless you're having permanently static shots. And I didn't want that necessarily either. I wanted some some movement in there, and um, so then I started twirling around. Okay, what if I do it the majority of it in first person? So the camera is me, and work my whole video around that kind of concept. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, that's a good start. I I'll, I'll, I'll kind of I'd start developing that idea, and then I thought, well, we want to try and keep this around the minute, so that. We can stick it on um, on Instagram, nice and easily. And I thought, well, I've actually got a lot of things that I want to get into this video. How am I going to do that? What style am I now going to go with? So I then decided I'm going to make lots of lots of jump cuts, real fast moving throughout the entire minute to get it all all of the t- uh, the ideas that I wanted to get in there in there. Um, not every single one made it in in the end, um, but Actually, because I did the pre-production properly after this, I think I only had a small number of additional shots there that wouldn't fit into the minute. And Mm -hmm. that's only because a section towards the end took up several seconds longer than I anticipated that it would. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's the only reason why. So I'm really pleased with the the pre-production I did on it and I planned it out in the right, right kind of way. So then I've settled on first person, quick moving. Um, I thought, okay, so that's one thing. What am I going to be doing? You know, so I've decided it will be all the typical things that I would do during the course of a day. And so I thought, right, well, what are days out? And I listed those out, listed out the type of shots that I could, I would, I could, I could do with that. I thought, okay, well that's one thing, but I need to I want to bring an element of humour into it as well, as well as a generally hopefully cool looking, cool looking video. And so I'll come up with a couple of you know amusing ideas. I I thought I'd I'd film and put in there as well. There was one other shot I wanted to do, which I ended up not attempting because it ran out of time, and I wasn't I didn't I wasn't one hundred percent sure on the way I wanted to do it, which means it would have taken longer to execute. I would have got it, but it would have taken a lot longer to do. And that was the idea of um, sort of perhaps. You know, going to the bathroom at the end of the month, uh, end of the night, and looking in the mirror, but not being able to see the camera. No. Oh. <laughs> okay. There are ways to do that, and you know, you can almost green screen your mirror mm-hmm. to a certain extent, and then film yourself. You can, um, you know, mask things out in a certain way, but film yourself with the camera in front of the mirror. You need quite a wide-angle lens to, to to do that. My bathroom's very small as well, so I'm, I'm not sure I would have got the right perspective. Mm. But I would have had a good play, and um, you know, ultimately would have scrapped it if it wasn't working. Um, but I just ran out of time to spend the right amount of time on that that shot. So that's something I'd like to try again in the in the future if we do any any similar kind of uh, video challenge.
0: Yeah. So yeah, there we go. That's a general idea of where I, how I got to my concept. And if you want to have a closer look at the videos that we've been talking about for all this time, then just head over to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash camera shake podcast. Or you can find our uh, video efforts on our YouTube channel um, as well. So uh, head over there, have a look at those and let us know what you think. I found this challenge, the most difficult challenge that we've set ourselves um, so far. Um, and really, it was mainly, mainly down to the, the fact that I really couldn't come up with a central idea for it um, initially. And because um, I tend to, I mean, no, no matter whether I create a, a photograph or, um, or a video, I sort of start from a, from a central idea and then I build everything else um, around that. Um, and so eventually, when my daughter asked me Or she challenged me to a bike race. He's an avid cyclist, I should say. Um, Then I kind of thought, oh, that'd be a cool thing to do. Um, And then, how would I film that Um, and turn that into an interesting little sequence? And then, of course, the question then is, you know, how does that fit into the whole lockdown scenario? And you know, Mm -hmm. why would you go for a bike race in the first instance? You know, and so. This sort of table sequence at the beginning um, of the video and at the end of the video really sort of just a storytelling device um, to bind everything together, really. And that's you know, and I had I was lucky enough that my daughter, you know, was really interested in being part of it, and um, you know, and she <laughs> she tried to utilize her acting skills, <laughs> you know. So it was good fun. It was, good, it was a great little fun little project in the end um and it's you know, we spent about 2 days filming it and then several hours editing yeah so yeah, yeah it was really good fun right so nick did you use a gimbal to shoot some of your uh, sequences i planned to um but i ended up
1: not going with it for any shots bar one in the end um so a gimbal for those who are who may not be familiar is um uh, K, as you once described to me before, it's a steady cam on a stick. And that's exactly what it is. It's motorised, you charge it up, and it gives you those, as we like to say, buttery smooth kind of shots. When I was planning this, I thought, well, I'm doing it in first person. Um, actually, the gimbal w- would probably be a really good idea to keep it looking smooth and um, nice and easy to handhold as well and keep it look- looking good. Mm. However, when I came to shoot, it wasn't working for me. It was too smooth. It was. It just didn't. It, it didn't feel natural, and I wanted it to feel quite natural. So I decided, other than one shot, to get rid of the gimbal and either handhold or use a tripod mm. um, or monopod, depending on the situation. So the shot, I only shot, I ended up using the gimbal on was as a shot, um, maybe. 15 seconds in, um, where I go do a speed ramp around the coffee grinds coming out. And then that was that. Um, Just to skip ahead real quick, I, after bringing this all in to Premiere Pro to edit, put that shot in, I didn't like it. It didn't feel quite right. So I actually went back and reshot that the next day, um, but did it handheld instead. I'm still not 100% happy with that shot, but it looks a lot better than the original gimbal shot. So, you know, the important, I think, lesson there really is that, you know, just because you have a piece of gear, and I have the Ronin S, it's a very expensive piece of gear as well, it doesn't mean you have to use it. Um, If you start using it in a particular situation, it's not working for you, it's okay to put that away. Put it aside and just go spog standard and use your hand if that gives you the look that you're looking for. Yeah, Um, you know, back you know years ago, I would be intent on using something because I had it. Just because, particularly if it was new as well, you know, I'd really want to use it. And Mm. it just that you have that gear. There are right occasions to use it, and there are occasions where you don't necessarily need to use it. You just need to know what it can produce, and that's the look that you want to
0: you want to actually go for and achieve. I always think the question is always like, what kind of, you know, what value does it bring to the production? Yeah. You know, and yeah. the thing about steady cams is um, steady cams are really, really, really useful because, um, you know, like you said, they provide this smooth movement. Um, and nine times out of 10, that's exactly what you want. The only time you don't want that kind of smooth movement is when you want that slight camera shake in there. There may be something you might want to, you know, display maybe... Some kind of um you know emotional discontent or some kind of mm-hmm. you know fear or whatever it is or unease or something like that, and a slightly you know slightly shaky footage might actually help you to convey that um through right. imagery so smooth movement um is often desirable but it's by all means is is' by no means always what you want to go for when you, yeah. you know, when you create um a shot um I mean in my case i sent i really basically used two different devices um, I shot most of it handheld actually um, and so with with the exception of the table scenes, which you know there it, it was a tripod um, and then I used a drone for some of the some of mm-hmm. the drone shots in the actual you know bike sequence. Um, the cool thing about that drone is that there's a there's sort of a tracking feature in it that allows you to track um, a, subject. a subject so if you lock that onto you know, one of the cyclists, if you want, then it'll just track that. And because the, the drone has a built-in gimbal, um, the the movement is super smooth
1: and it looks mm. very,
0: very cinematic. I mean, in fact, it's smoother yeah. than a lot of the helicopter shots you see from way oh, back yeah. when. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so, yeah. Um, yeah, it's really, really interesting. Um, Weatherworks, it was I mean, it's a fun day for us to go out and, and fly the drone anyway. But uh, you know, to shoot these sequences was, was really, really good
1: mm-hmm. fun. So you used your drone. What, what camera
0: did you end up using for the, for the non-drone shots? So my original intention was actually to use um, a Fuji for everything else. Um, but the, one of the problems with that with a Fuji X100F is, um, although the video actually looks really good straight out of the camera, um the built-in ND filter will only work when it's in photo mode it won't work uh, in in video mode and yeah. because it was such a, a hot and sunny weekend um you know it's, it would have been impossible to get some of the shots that i had uh, in my head that i wanted to get you know, without an ND filter so mm-hmm. um for mm-hmm. those shots i used the i, I used my icon yeah. yeah yeah and um um i have to say though you know, given that I used three different cameras for the whole thing, you know the uh, I used the Fuji for the table scenes, um I used the Nikon for the the handheld outdoor scenes, if you want, and then the drone for the flyover shots. Um, I'm actually quite happy with the way that they integrate after the color grading, because that was my biggest worry was that it, we you know you have three different cameras. They all produce slightly different images, and then in, uh, in post-production, when you're trying to make it all look homogenous and you want it to look the same, you know, it's it's difficult to do. And I, I wasn't mm. really, I wasn't at all sure that uh, yeah. it was it was going to hold together like that. But I'm actually I'm reasonably happy with it. So.
1: Well, before we perhaps talk about the the, the camera lens and whatnot that um, I used in 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 my video, it might it'd be good to understand how you went about kind of make uh, integrating those shots together, you know, what was your process to make sure that they, um, they at least had a similar look, look to them all. Um, what did you do in post?
0: I mean, first of all, you know, you got to make sure that they're, that they're well exposed. So that's, as always, that's, um, you know, that's a given. Um, but really I knew that I wanted to shoot some of the, some of the B-roll, um, scenes with a really, uh, With a very wide open um, aperture, so because I wanted that really shallow depth of field, so for that I really needed to uh, use a lens that would allow me to do that, Um, and that I could use an ND filter on at the same time. So that was the Fuji out of the question for that straight away. Um, So, um, so in the end, I decided to use a twenty-four to seventy really for most of the handheld stuff because Mm -hmm. um, it really allowed me to get the, the focal length. Um, that I wanted to get. I mean, the other the other thing was that you know we literally took our bikes um, out into the prairie, so you know it, it was limited or limiting in the amount of gear that I could actually take. You know, so I had to basically fit everything into one backpack. <laughs> you know, um, so um, so yeah, that that was really that was a process for most of the uh, most of the handheld scenes. Um, there was a lot of you know, a camera on the ground and a cycling past it and all that kind of stuff. Um, So that was all, I mean, it's relatively straightforward. And for Mm -hmm. the flyover shots, I I shot everything at 120 frames per second. for that, Because at that point, I wasn't sure whether I was going to use some slow motion for some of those Mm -hmm. flyovers or not. um, Because I wasn't really sure how how they were going to come out. Um, And it could have been cool with some of the follow shots. But I think in this particular uh, video, one of the targets that we had set ourselves was to, st- you know, to keep it around about the 60-second mark, and I miserably failed with that. <laughs> I think it ended up being like you know, a minute 27 or something long, so that was a fail. But, um, but it also meant that you know, I couldn't really have extended slow-motion sequences, because once mm-hmm. you've got two or three of those in your video, you know, it really adds to the overall length of it so I kind of decided to actually speed things up rather than slow them down in the end mm-hmm. um, but uh, again because it was so bright and, and, and sunny as far as the drone was concerned I have a special set of ND filters for the uh for the camera on the on the drone so you know I had to basically stop all that down as well because uh, mm-hmm. it was mm-hmm. punishingly hot yeah it was literally desert conditions when so we went out to to film that mm-hmm. so um and then um, I still got the Fuji in for the for the uh, the exposition um, scenes, like the table scenes at the beginning and the end, just mainly because I wanted to. <laughs> and the funny thing was, um, you know, for those of you who are familiar with our videography, you tend to, if you can, want to um, film in a lock or at least a flat profile on your camera, and you can do that both on the Nikon and on the drone. So that's the one thing that kind of links those together when it comes to color grading and post that's a real advantage because you're really starting from a really low contrast a mm-hmm. kind of starting point and you can build the image up um from there um, with the Fuji you're really uh, using one of the kind of uh picture formats that they you know picture profiles to say that they uh um that they've built in and so again I wasn't really sure how that was going to integrate but yeah, I was really surprised. That worked straight away. Yeah, <laughs> no problem there at all. Nice. So, so it was a little bit uh, experimental because I haven't really made a lot of videos with with the Fuji, and it was one of the things that I wanted to try out. Yeah. Um, and also I hadn't really filmed very much with the drone this year, at least. So I've been flying it a few times, I've been out just for fun, um, mm-hmm. but I haven't really mm-hmm. done any filming with it. Um, so that was just a fun thing to do. Um, yeah, so it, it ended up being a really interesting challenge, and I, like I said, you know, I had a really hard time coming up with with uh, with an initial idea for it, but yeah, you know, it did work out in the end. For me, I obviously used
1: my GH 5s as uh, as my camera. Um, I didn't change from that at any point. Um, and for every shot you see, other than a couple which I'll describe in a minute in in a moment. I used a uh, 20 mm prime pancake lens. Ah. okay And the reason for that is because it's because it goes down to a 1.7 mm. um, aperture, as opposed to my uh, my other um, Panasonic lenses, which go down to 2.8. and I wanted more, more sh- uh, a shallower depth of field for mm. this video wherever I possibly could. Um, so that's what I went with I used that for everything and then because it's a prime it was reliant on me getting close to the object that I was filming it was reliant on me to put everything where I needed it to be rather than having the luxury of um, you know being able to zoom in or, or zoom out um, so that was a nice nice challenge and I love the look of that lens it looks different to my other lenses it does feel ever so slightly more cinematic to me um, that could be completely false but that's the impression it gives me mm. and I think that's another thing if that piece of gear makes you feel good you're gonna produce something better from it because you're feeling good about it straight yep. away and it's just, it's just a natural reaction that you get to something right so that's why I stuck with stuck with that lens all the way all the way through it until I got to the shots that I needed to do outside and the reason I couldn't use that outside is because I needed an ND filter because <laughs> mm. it was super bright and that that you can't screw anything onto the front of, um, of that lens. So I switched to my um, uh, 18 to 35 mil lens and put my ND filter on the front of that. And I knew it was cranked as well. I mean, it was, it was so bright and I was out in the middle of the day as well. So it, was, it couldn't have been more bright. Um, so that, every outdoor shot is on, is on is on that lens with an ND filter on it. Isn't it funny though?
0: Do you remember um, a, a couple of episodes ago we talked about what we would put into a a bag, um, yeah. If we went, you know, onto a desert island or something like that, like the you know this what was it the three bits of photo equipment or something we would take with yeah. us. Yeah. And um, the ND filter was very high on that list, wasn't it? Yeah, that was one of my three, for sure. Yeah, and it's it's, it's, it's really it's amusing because when I think when you first uh, get into photography, you don't really think of um, of filters, um, in any no. w- in any way. It took me years until I started to appreciate you know, the benefits of an ND filter. Yeah, because it never really. But for the, again, for those for those of you who are listening and you don't know what an ND filter is, an ND filter is essentially a part of sunglasses for your camera. Yeah. you know, for the lack of a better word, it's essentially a, a toned um filter that you. On top of the lens, and it essentially works just like sunglasses. It effectively darkens down the image. So if it's really, really bright um, outside, it's very sunny, maybe, and you're shooting with um, a very wide aperture because you want that really shallow depth of field, then you need to come up with a way to reduce the amount of light that um, falls into your lens. So essentially, just put some sunglasses on. And the uh, the real advantage of Something called a variable ND filter is uh, in the fact that you can turn the filter itself and you can increase or decrease the amount of shading that um, that it produces. So you can basically up or down the intensity of your sunglasses uh, just by using okay. the same uh, variable ND filter. Okay. They're a little bit more expensive, um, but especially for video, I really found, uh, I found them absolutely invaluable. Um, it's surprising... How little sunlight it takes, um, you know, until you need to use an ND filter um, for for shots with with a very shallow depth of field. And
1: uh, if, if I'm shooting outside during the day, mm-hmm. it's very rare I don't have it on there. Yeah, exactly. Very rare. Yeah. And word of it's, it's worth probably just noting on ND filters um, is that if you have, you can get sets of them uh, that will reduce light by various varying stops. Yeah. Um, but they can usually stack on top of each other as well. I think you can screw them on top of each other. Yeah. So if you can't, if you've got those, you don't necessarily need to get yourself a variable one. I, I personally do use a variable one, mm. um, which I think goes up to six stops um, of light reduction, I, I believe, um, made yeah. by Gobe, if memory serves. Um, but it's if you're just starting out and you you know you just want to get an ND filter because you, you're shooting and you're not quite getting what you want then any cheap one will, will do the job. Yeah. As you progress and you start really seeing what those ND filters are doing, it's worth investing in a slightly more expensive one, When it's a, particularly when it's a variable one. Yeah. Um, some of the cheaper ones where the, the glass inside starts rotating and moving together, you can get different levels of light reduction going across um, that filter, okay. whereas the more expensive ones are a bit more precise and you don't see that variation. It's only when you see them side by side, the shots you can you can pick it out. But as you again, as you become a bit more experienced, you can you can see those straight away, and it's it's not particularly pleasing.
0: Yeah, and of course you know you might say, well, why don't you just um, increase the aperture and make you know make that hole smaller inside of the lens and restrict the amount of uh, of light that enters the lens that way? Well, and the answer is you could do that. You could stop down to f11 or f. 16 or whatever. Um, but of course, the, the side effect of doing that is that your depth of field will increase dramatically. So If you want to get this really cinematic feel where you have a detail sharp and then the, the background falling off uh, in, in outer focus, then you need to decrease the depth of field. And in order to, uh, to do that, you need to open up the aperture in your lens and that would automatically let more light in. And so therefore, you need to come up with a different way of, um, of producing that light. And that's that's yes. really what ND filters um, are very, very good at doing. So, um, yeah, it was a I thought it was, a, you know, it was a challenge. I mean, I think one of the biggest challenges for me in this whole thing, other than coming up with the initial, with the initial idea, was actually to to film under such super monster bright conditions. know. Um, that was just, you know, that was crazy. So the other thing that's probably worth noting about my video is
1: that other than, um, I believe, two shots in the whole thing, um, I used one light, and it's a very small light, and it was this Aperture MC light, which can produce, you know, it's an LED light, it produces um, white light, tungsten, every shade in between, as you can imagine. Um, But the advantage of this is it will also produce... Um, anything using RGB so red green blue so it'll produce any color that you want it to produce so if you can see the blue light behind me right now um, just because I've got two of these and one's doing a fill light right now this one I want to hold up and show so I've got a different light entirely behind me right now but this would typically be producing that blue light behind me the uh, the MC light that I've got over this side doing the fill light is producing um, uh, 5500 Kelvin so you, you can see the uh, what it what it's able to do. So for nearly every shot, it was set to fifty five hundred, and it has to be really close on a lot of it because it, it it's got a lot of power for the size of it. And they're but bright as light hell. A, huh? They're bright as hell. They're really really bright for the size of it. But to br- to light a scene, it struggles. It will struggle a little. Mm-hmm. Um, so it needs to be pretty close. Um, I had some diffusion on it, on it as well because it comes with a nice kind of um, rubberized type diffuser to, go, diffuser to go over the top. Um, and then the scenes where it's kind of um, it's nighttime. Um, obviously, all the lights were off. You know, curtains were down, drawn and so forth. Um, needed some light to be able to see what was going on. So I actually set this to a you know somewhere in between tungsten and white. And had that above just shining down. So it gave a more of a glow than uh, anything else. Mm. Um, Felt a bit more nighttime-ish. Could have said it's kind of moonlight style color, but it didn't feel right knowing that the curtains would have been closed. So it went a warmer um, type of light
0: light there. But every single shot had that on it. The cool things about these lights, I think, is uh, they're, they're magnetic, aren't they? To the point
1: where you can all you can, almost can't pull them off. Yeah. <laughs> they're
0: really strong. Yeah, I love the magnets the on the back
1: are astounding. Really good. It, really, you can really stick good. them
0: to anything, anything metal.
1: Yep. So you get so the, the options you've got. You've got the usual kind of um, a screw mount at the bottom. Mm. You've got the strong magnets on the back, um, but they also provide you with um, like uh, like tongue and loop. Is it is that what they're called? Um, like Velcro style. But the M is it M three? The really, really tough stuff that you can stick onto the back, and then stick that somewhere else if you you, you want to be able to put it on and oh, take it off. Is
0: it like industrial Velcro?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm sure it's called M3 or M5. I, I forget now. Yeah. Um, it's the same stuff I use on my pedal board, funnily enough, for for myself. Same, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other really cool thing about this was that um, you know it, it it's got some effects modes on it as well. So like it can produce what looks like an, a TV flickering or a light bulb faulty oh, really? or a fireworks or a <laughs> bomb going off explosion, that kind of stuff, right? Um probably we'll find a use for some of those at some point. Just an extra little feature. And then the 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 great part about it is you they connect to your phone. And so you can with their the Aperture app, you can control every attribute to do of it. So you can change the colors. You can go from white to tungsten to um, you know, your red, your blues, your greens, your yellows, your orange, whatever it might be. You can change the intensity of it as well. You can turn the lights on and off from it too. And you can save them as scenes so they connect. You can connect multiple. So I've got both of these connected to my phone. And at the time, I didn't have it connected. But now my 300D is also connected to that app. So all I need to do in a typical setup, bearing in mind I've got a slightly different light behind me today, is I can just set these up, open my phone, open that scene, and no matter what they were set to previously,
0: if I use them for something else, they go back to all the settings I need them to be at. Wonderful. You know, I think one day, our brains will be connected to our phones. It's like everything these days connects to your phone. It's like, you know, your home, like your, I don't know, light bulb in your living room, <laughs> your fridge, like yeah, everything, yeah. Um, your car, whatever, you know. I just read this thing um, about Elon Musk's uh, brain sensor thing, you know, whatever it is. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, like, whether in a few years' time you, know, you could just have an app on your phone and you're just going oh, to, feel a bit sad today, just click happy, bing, and you're happy. Ta-da! <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Love it. It's a, be great. very much like an episode of Black Mirror. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. If I could remote control my kids' emotions, that would be fantastic. <laughs> <laughs>
1: the, the, the downside of all this connectivity, if you like, is um, I, was, um, I was talking to a friend uh, over Zoom the other day, and we just made some really obscure reference to some video game. Like, I forget what it was now. But immediately he, he was just on his phone at that moment as well, and he's gone onto Instagram. What was the first sponsored ad was that popped up was exactly about that obscure video game. Hmm. That's worrying. And <laughs> I, I hear other people t- tell me the same thing about Alexa with Amazon and you know Google and all of that, always listening. Scary stuff. Targeted <laughs>
0: advertising.
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, you know. Yeah. So, so just back to these 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 lights, real quick. I mean, oh, and the other. Oh, one more more point that's worth mentioning is they charge via USB-C. Um. So there's no need to change the batteries, which is a plus point, but could also be a negative, depending on how long you need to use them for, Mm. and whether you need them to charge quickly. Um, but they also wireless charge as well. So if you've got a wireless charger that you put your phone on at home, they charge like that too. Oh wow! It takes okay, slightly longer cool. to charge them. Um, so I think all in all, if you charge them through USB, it takes about an hour and a half from flat to be full. So how long do they last? About two hours on max power. Oh okay. Which again, for the size of it, isn't too bad. Isn't too bad. I probably don't get that much more out of one of the larger phony style batteries that i have on my other lights um but they take forever to charge i mean hours
0: yeah yeah <laughs> eight hours, hours. <laughs> yeah <laughs> but uh but they are pretty damn reliable i mean that's you know they seem well, to they be are. going absolutely forever so
1: yeah totally yeah. totally love like, never and and they're only um they've gone up in price but I, I got them only a few weeks ago um and i think i paid 90 pounds each for them which for an aperture light, mm. pretty unheard of as well. Nice. Um, high quality stuff. Given the flexibility
0: here for those, is definitely worth.
1: Yeah. yeah, worth doing. I think absolutely. And uh, so, if you have a look in the video, um, there's a uh, a uh, mimicked love actually scene towards the end. Um, they're but actually both <laughs> in the scene. Um, so I've got the 300D lighting the main kind of area. Um, And actually, if you look over to the left-hand side on the ground, pointing up, and over to the right-hand side, kind of on the the windowsill, they're they're actually set to kind of a yellowy, warm type of light. You can see, and they weren't on max power either. So that gives you, perhaps will give you all an idea of the intensity that they'll give. So it's an accent light. Brilliant. Yeah. Second to none. Um, If you want to try and use it as a main light, you're probably not going to be able to do it if you wanted this kind of situation. Yeah, It would if it was pretty close. If you were just you know, doing a, a, a vlog or something like that, I think it might work quite well. If it's just out shot and you're quite close up, I think it'll work well. Um, if you just lighten yourself to be a bit more visible and have a better picture over Zoom, it's going to work brilliantly as well. Um, and anyway, yeah. you need to get it in close.
0: Well, I think it's an accent light, like you said, you know, to light uh, certain elements in the background, they're absolutely brilliant. And of course, I mean, the other thing is, you know, at a pinch, if you're out and you can't really take a lighting rig with you and you just need some light because you might be, I don't know, vlogging in the dark or something, just want to light your face a little bit. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And they're tiny too, you know, they're, what's that,
0: three inches, four inches by two or three inches, something like that. And the thing, I mean, even, you know, we're we're talking about a video really mainly here, but uh, even in a photographic, scenario, um, you know, yeah. they could come in really handy, you know, um, especially, I like those kind of lights when you're um, taking uh, photos of something very small, like almost like a macro type of situation mm-hmm. where you need to light something uh, that's potentially, you know, tiny, then uh, then they can come in really handy as well. Or, you yeah. know, for effects lighting, you know, great use. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they're, they're really impressive, uh, those lights. I love them. Highly, highly recommend these. <laughs> highly recommend them. Right now, talking about pictures, um, here's a funny thing that I came across uh, this week, um, and I thought I sort of have a chat with you about it because somebody stole one of my photos. Huh? Really? Yeah, yeah. Somebody stole. I shouldn't laugh, but it's <laughs> not not every day that happens. No, not every day that it happens. Um, in fact, it hasn't really happened to me at all like this uh, before, but um, I was looking on a bicycle website um, last week because I was looking for a bike for my wife, and I came across a picture of myself on a Dutch bike. It's a photo that I took um, about six years ago, and uh, I took it at the time just for fun. It was almost like a self-portrait type of thing because I had just bought that bike from said company. And uh, it was just a little bit of fun. And at the time, I put it on Facebook, as you do. Um, and I think for at least for a short while, I had that photo on my website um, under the you know, the portrait section of that website. Um, and so, yeah, I was really surprised to find myself or photo of myself on this bike website. And I would have almost felt flattered if it hadn't been for the fact not only did they have my photo on there, but across the photo it said, Ben, California. <laughs> now it's definitely a photo of me. My name is not Ben. And that photo was definitely not taken in California. In fact, it was taken in uh, Leighton Buzzard. <laughs> what can I say? The
1: California of England. Yeah. yeah
0: so I found that really bizarre. Um, I don't know what, what do you think about that. But um, you know, the funny thing about this is, Had they contacted me and asked me whether they could use that photo on their website, um, I would have probably said yes, you know, because actually I love their bikes. I love their product. So I wouldn't have had a problem with it at all. You know, I would have probably felt quite flattered to be asked. Um, The thing that kind of, you know, that I find weird is the fact that um, they didn't contact me at the time and they just try to hide the fact by using it totally false name and location. It's just it's just very strange. I spoke to some uh, some friends about this, and somebody uh somebody asked me, so you know, if you had licensed this photo, how much would they owe you in licensing fees by now? And I thought, well, that's a good question. We might as well find out. So I went onto the AOP website, the Association of Photographers, and they have uh, a licensing fee calculator on their website. And uh the way uh, photo licensing works is essentially it's based on three elements. Uh, so when you license a photo, you license it for use in a certain territory. So for instance, Europe or the UK or worldwide, for example, um, and you license it for a duration. So that could be for one year, or for two years, or for three years and so on. And then you license it for a particular use so that could be uh, use in print media, it could be used uh, use on a company website or in social media or internet advertising or whatever. Mm-hmm. So you specify um, those uses and uh, and so based on that, you can then calculate how much um, the license fee should cost. so as a you know as a photographer, that's a really useful tool because if you're ever in that situation, in particular when you work with uh, with corporates, then, uh, that's, you know, again, it's a, it's a really useful tool um, to have because licensing is often something that people tend to forget about. Mm-hmm. You know, because you mm-hmm. think of doing a photo session and you think of being paid for this particular project. Um, what a lot of people tend to forget is the fact that your photo can still generate income after the initial session. So, a good example would be, you know, you take, uh, you take photos for a company, you charge them this much for the company, for, for the photo. And then a year later, they decide to use that particular photo for an advertising campaign and put it all over town on billboards, for example. So at that point, your work generates further income for the company. And so therefore, you have the right to, you know, to license that photo. So what you would technically do, or what you should do is really you should have the license fee uh, component built into your initial project. Um, but so anyway, so in this particular case, given that um, I took this photo of six years ago, um, I just assumed that uh, you know they had it on their website for the last six years. And by punching in these parameters into the license fee calculator on the AOP website is really interesting. Uh, what result i got in the end so i basically thought about well, you know six years um it's on their website so i'm assuming it's worldwide coverage um and again in terms of use you know, it's on their company website and said you know social media so on and so forth so guess what the end result was guess how much oh. money this company would technically owe me in unpaid licensing fees a, a few bikes worth <laughs> a few bikes worth yeah
1: yeah. Oh, God. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not particularly up to speed with licensing costs and things like that. Um, I don't know. So the total came to
0: £15,750. Okay. It's about 10 grand more than I thought it might have been. Wow. Wow. So, yeah. So that's, that's the money that, that's the, kind, the sort of income that you w- would lose out on as a photographer if yeah. you didn't license um, your work. Um, so I highly recommend to have a look at uh, photo licensing. And again, you can go to the AOP website. Um, we'll throw a link on um, on Facebook for you there. I guess one
1: of the real tricky parts of everything licensing related is, um, how do you know someone has or is using your image without licensing it from you or without gaining your permission? Um, like you, you didn't find out about this photo for potentially up to six years, what you know, could, you know, What options do people then have? How do you determine how long it's been there, and it's et cetera, et cetera? Can you keep an eye on all your photos all the time? It's, that's where I think it becomes quite challenging, or you can let it become quite challenging.
0: Yeah. I mean, this, this really um, comes into play very often in advertising, you know, when you're uh, creating product um, shots for mm. particular products, for example. So um, In advertising, I mean, it's very rare that uh, images in advertising are used, you know, years and years and years after you've taken them. That's just due to the fact that you know you would take images of of products that are being advertised right now. You know, um, so I mean, i say nine, That's probably true nine times out of ten. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's relatively easy to uh, to set these licensing parameters. You know, typically you'd license a photo for a year, maybe two, maybe two years, you know, you stipulate the territory. So whether it's, you know, whether it's a, a national advertising campaign in the UK, for example, or whether it's an international uh, campaign or whether it's, you know, something that's used in Asia or whatever it is. Um, and, uh, and then you define the type of use. So, for instance, whether you know that image is used in print media, or whether it's used in print advertising, or whether it's used um, online, or whether it's just simply you know supposed to be used uh, on the website, and of course these things can change, and this is where you know licensing comes in. If you want to know more about licensing um, and licensing your photographs, then check out the AOP website. So, the AOP is the Association of Photographers, and the website is the-aop.org. Just check that out there's lots of really useful information on there cool. did you see that um canon released some free
1: software recently to enable your the a canon dslr
0: to be used as a webcam well i didn't see that in relation to canon i did read something about fuji doing a similar thing So, so canon i
1: i, I forget now because a couple Two or three weeks ago they released um, software to do it because normally you'd need a capture card mm. um, to, to, be, to enable your um, DSLR to be used in that way. Um, but they've developed some sort of software to be able to do it so you can just have it for free. And they've done it, I guess, due to the pandemic so that people can have decent webcam footage. Now, initially that was just for Windows machines, but they just released the Mac version as well. Um, which is great, you know. I'm not that I use Canon, but I'm on Mac and I look, most people that are, uh, I know use Mac too. Um, so they'll be using their Canon uh, Canon cameras for that. But I, I saw the Fuji thing too, um, and they've just done exactly the same thing, which is fantastic. However, I know you use Mac, it's only for Windows.
0: Ah, no.
1: <laughs> Currently only for Windows, but they've only just released it. So, uh, Give them a short while, and I'm sure the the Mac version will be out as well.
0: It's such a no brainer, though, isn't it? I mean, come on, like using your DSLR or your your mirrorless camera as a webcam. It's such a no brainer. Yeah. Why yeah. has it taken so long? I know, and I don't want to. I don't want to go and spend a hundred quid
1: on a capture card to be able to. No thanks. That's. Just, I don't. I'm not that desperate to use it, but it would be nice to have the option to be able to use it. So Panasonic,
0: Nikon, pay attention you can, you know, in a time when you can remote control your camera from your phone wirelessly, yeah, you can't use it as a webcam. I mean, what is yeah? The, the next best free option you could do if your camera has
1: software that enables live view on your phone or on your, your laptop is then to screen share that piece of software. It's going to look rubbish, but that's the best you're going to be able to do at the minute. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, it's cool. Just a, a little side that I, I noticed. I um, thought it's quite useful to know if you haven't seen it and you've got those cameras, well worth using it.
0: You know, that's actually one of the reasons why I haven't got myself to buying uh, like a standalone webcam, mm-hmm. you know, because the the built-in uh, webcam in my laptop is not particularly great. Um, yeah, me either. You know, but I'm, I'm really affronted by the thought that I should spend more money on yet another external little camera, you know, when I've got a whole bag full of, Extremely expensive, super awesome pro camera gear, right there. This yeah. <laughs> doesn't make any sense. So, so no. <laughs>
1: I have to, that said, I have to say I did um, for the first time buy a webcam uh, a few weeks ago, a, a Logitech. I don't, know, I don't know,
0: whatever it is, it's about ninety quid, yeah. Um, yeah, ninety pounds. And it looks great. I mean, I have to say, you know, it's like the image from your like when we're um, zooming or FaceTime or whatever. You know, you're your actual image, since you've fucked um, that new webcam in, is vastly improved. Yeah, it looks it, so much better.
1: And now that we're over Zoom constantly at the moment, I thought, well, I may as well give everyone a slightly better experience of looking at this wonderful face. And um, but you know what I've used most out of uh, what I got from with that camera? What's that? I'll show you this tiny little tripod that <laughs> <laughs> came with it. <laughs> it's amazing it's absolutely fantastic so now this is this holds one of those
0: aperture lights as a as my feel light like Right, <laughs> it's the little things right that's it yeah what really caught my eye this week is that no other than joe rogan is leaving youtube for spotify yeah i saw that that is incredible so for those of you For this one person on this planet who doesn't know who Joe Rogan is, Joe Rogan is uh, probably the world's most successful podcaster. Um, He's a TV personality um, and a former, you know, TV host and uh, uh, martial arts commentator, and so on and so forth. And he uh, started a a podcast some years ago, where I think initially he was just, you know, chatting with his mates, sort of thing. Um, and has developed into the world's biggest uh, podcast. I think he has. Just to put that into perspective, you know, the Joe Rogan podcast has 150 million downloads per month. 150 Crazy. million downloads per month—that is incredible. You know, for some, you know, spoken from the perspective of somebody who's just launched a, a little camera podcast, <laughs> um, 150 million downloads uh, per month is just insane. You know, having said that, you know, his podcast has been native to YouTube and, uh, you know, an yeah. Apple podcast and so on and so forth. So there's uh, the audio versions and the video versions and so on and so forth. And um, and that's all going to go. That's all going to go. Yeah, he was moving m- his entire operation to Spotify. And it was a massive deal as well, wasn't it? 100 million. Huge. 100 million US dollars. So now this really caught my eye because I thought, well, first of all, why would you do that? I'm just, it's the, I mean, hundred million is a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. You know, <laughs> that would probably tempt most people, you know, but, uh, but I just think like, you know, Spotify, an audio platform, what about all the, cause I watch, um, the Joe Rogan podcast, you know, pretty regularly, I would say. And I enjoy the, the YouTube uh, video version of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the time when I have, we don't you know, I have the time, um, unless I listen to it in the car or something but i would say probably the majority of the time i would probably rather watch the video um you know the video version of it so get this right so spotify are going to build a video platform just for this podcast isn't that that's crazy i find wow. that crazy and uh, that, i mean it's not the first time this has happened i don't know if you remember um howard stern a few years uh moved his um his uh, radio show to mm-hmm. uh, Sirius FM and uh, it rent behind a paywall. And one of the reasons for that was that he, I think at a time he felt that uh, he wasn't as restricted um, with Sirius. So, you know, I think um, he probably felt he had more freedom um, in the things that he could say that way. Um, and that may be part of the reason why, um, why Joe, Joe Rogan took this decision. I haven't spoken to him, so I don't really know. But from what I gather, um, there's uh, there's a lot of censorship going on on YouTube, um, particularly in um, relation to breach of copyright. And uh, his content is quite controversial sometimes. And I know that he's had issues with that in the past. But this may have very well been, um, you know, sort of a motivating factor. Mm. Um, and that's at a time when Spotify are very, very heavily, Pushing into the world of podcasting. So they, I think they're seeing a, a massive uh you know, business opportunity there. And I've just had a look at some numbers, and this might, you might find this very interesting. So remember, Spotify paid Joe Rogan $100 million. And we agree that's a lot of money. However, within 48 hours of Spotify announcing the fact that they had basically landed this deal with the Rogan podcast, their shares have Absolutely skyrocketed. So in forty eight hours they went from thirty billion dollars to thirty-five billion dollars. So they gained five billion dollars in forty eight hours. Out of which they paid hundred million to Joe Rogan.
1: Eclipses that hundred million, all right, isn't it? Sounds it They've seems just like a made sound investment. Four
0: point nine billion dollars in forty eight hours. That's just unreal. What's that fifteen percent increase? That's Really explain 20, something like that, <laughs> I would say. So yeah, I mean that day. You know, I find I find it really remarkable. I, to be honest, I, I couldn't really believe in it first um when I first
1: read it. But well I wonder, given how many downloads he does have every month hmm. on Apple, whether those who listen to him regularly and Know, avid fans, whether they'll just listen to all their podcasts on Spotify now, you know, I'm guessing that's part of Spotify's strategy here is to convert his listeners to listen to all their podcasts on Spotify.
0: Whether that will happen or not, time will tell. You know, I have no doubt that he will pull some of his uh, listenership or some of his audience over to Spotify. You know, absolutely, yeah. um, definitely. But um, the Howard Stern uh, example is a really good example. Because um, what happened there was that he lost a large chunk of his audience in this transition because he went from a free show to, yeah. to um, a show that's behind a paywall. So people now had to um, subscribe to, uh, to his show. And that lost him millions and millions of listeners. I mean, personally, I have to say, I don't really care which platform no. the podcast is on. Um, I listen to a lot of uh, podcasts on, on the Apple podcast platform. Um, but I also listen to some stuff on um, Spotify. Although I have to say that I'm not... When I think of podcasts, I don't think of Spotify in the first instance. So that is, you know, obviously something they are trying to change.
1: Yeah, and that makes sense. And I think if they're bringing in video for, for him, um, that's not going to stay just him for long. It will expand no, and they'll probably start showing... They'll have all the all their artists, music videos streaming on there as well. Um, at some point, I've no doubt something like that will happen. But with um, with podcasts, you know, I stream my music. I use Spotify. That's where I get my music from. Um, there's a huge argument to say, well, why not just have all my podcasts in there as well that I listen to? But there's, and this is just a slight aside, is I either want to listen to music or I'm listening to a podcast. I'm either in the frame of mind to do one or the other, not yes. necessarily both. And know you, obviously you wouldn't be doing both at the same time. <laughs> How would but you there's do that? Psych- <laughs> Yeah. There is a little psychological aspect around it about going to your dedicated podcast app yeah. to go and listen to your podcast. There is something about that, particularly obvi- obviously if you're an iPhone, iPhone user or Mac user. Yeah, absolutely true.
0: So that's it for this week, folks. You've been listening to the Camera Shake Podcast with me, Kirsten Nuts, and Nick Kirby. If you're listening to the audio version of this podcast, please do us a flavor and subscribe to the Camera Shake Podcast over on YouTube or head over and drop us a like on Facebook. So that's it for today. And we'll see you again in the next episode every Thursday. (laughs) <laughs> what catchy riff, eh? <laughs>